We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to episode 396 of the Win and Six podcast, proudly a part of the Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family. I'm your host, Adam McGee, and joining me as always, it's my good friend, Jordan Tresky. Jordan, hello. Hello. I don't know if you have the saying in your part of the world, like about, you know, two buses coming along at once, you're waiting all that time, two buses come along at once. Feels like it's a. I think it's a British thing. It originated with London buses. I've but it's it's a very. Two buses I'm sure you have. Lot. Oh yeah. And this is also win at six. I mean, we haven't had a pod in months. We made our return to books podcasting. We certainly have been podcasting, uh, but we made our return to books podcasting with Rohan on the emergency pod to break down the Damian Lillard trade still a very weird and surreal thing to say. If somehow you haven't checked out that episode, go back one in this very feed you're listening to pick up your device, you know, click that mouse on your computer and, you know, bookmark that one for when you finish this episode, because we, we went deep on all things related to that groundbreaking trade for the Milwaukee books. Um, but I guess this is a return of like regular win at six. I don't know. We'll probably have a few bumps uh, before we get into a regular routine between now and the regular season. You know, uh, the Brewers, the playoffs might have something to do with that. Uh, you have some personal events of note, which might 
might cause the disruption, <laughs> but we are back in the books podcasting game. And for us to be back in the books podcasting game, Jordan, I would have thought we got to do something special, right? Mm-hmm. What could we possibly do? What would make it really, really special? What, what person that we've long admired and championed and revered um, their great works, really, on this podcast could we bring into the fold for the return for episode 396? We've only gone and got Mike Dunlap on the pod. Coach Mike Dunlap, former assistant coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, NBA champion with the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, I'm, I'm still somewhat in disbelief, but on the pod, Jordan, big, big deal for you. How are you feeling? Very big deal. It's been a long time coming. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it. What, what can we say about it other than? The man came on the pod and graced us with his wisdom, his presence, his life experiences, which of which there are many. And yeah, I, I think it's I I maybe can I be so bold. Go on. One of our best podcasts of all time. I think that's not even being that bold. Um well, we've had, had different we've had different kinds of great of yeah, we've had yeah, great episodes true. and different kinds of great. Um, some truly unhinged kinds of great. Uh, we've had we've had the real lows of books basketball. We've had the real highs. Um, the highs were better. You know, it yeah. goes with the territory. The highs were better, and yeah, we get to talk a little bit about the highs with Mike Dunlap and about his really incredible basketball journey. Um, it's always something when you see kind of basketball life or coaches who've been in all around the world and all through the college system and all of these various stops throughout the NBA. And it's like for people like you and I, who could spend days trawling Wikipedia or basketball reference and kind of mapping out careers in this regard. And you and I have done that. Yes. Uh, it's really fun and interesting to get to talk to the person behind that and kind of get a sense of, well, what is learned at each of those spots or what's different and what, makes the journey and brings them to a point where in Mike Dunlap's case, he landed in Milwaukee and got to be a part of one of the best moments in the history of the franchise, three of the best years in the history of the franchise. You know what? I think without further ado, let's throw it over, Jordan, to our conversation with former books assistant coach, Mike Dunlap. Okay, so it's a great privilege and an honor to be joined by former assistant coach at Milwaukee Books, Mike Dunlap. Welcome to the podcast, Coach. It's it's great to have you here. It's great to be here, guys. We're going to get after today. Plenty to talk about. <laughs> there sure is. Uh, we we have been great admirers um, of the work that you and the rest of the coaching staff have done in recent years with the books. I think that goes without saying. Very, very special time in the history of the franchise. How, how have you been doing in the, the months since the book season has ended? Um, obviously, it's been a time of change for you. I've seen you're, you're still very much out there on the coaching trail. You're working, I think, with the Pert Wildcats in Las Vegas a, a yep. couple of weeks ago, I saw. So yep. how are you doing? How, how have things been like since your time with the books came to an end? Uh, they've been, they couldn't be better. 
and uh, you know, away from me, coaches like you guys are on a countdown. There's always that next thing to do. So uh, knowing that you have choices to make uh, that are not connected to a countdown is really incredible. And it's scary, but at the same time, it's, it's a good, it's a good fear, you know, in terms of relevance and, um, you know, being purposeful uh, in a given day, you know, it's still about helping other people. And then you can work back to being pretty selfish in a given day, reading, writing, and all those other things, but you want to give, uh, people who are ascending the mountain as much as you can so that they can uh, have the same experience that you had. And I've, you know, had an array of, of really uh, eclectic, but good, beautiful, colorful experiences in the game of basketball. And so you have to have some luck. But uh, now that I've got this time with my wife, Molly, of 36 years, we can make choices together. Something that I, I've noticed in a, a lot of kind of reading about you or hearing other coaches or players give anecdotes over the years is there there are certain kind of phrases that come up or there's certain things that even from <laughs> from your own oh from your God. own they're all good. They're all good. Don't worry. It'd still be humorous. It is from your own Twitter humorous. presence. We, we could we can see yeah. one one yeah. that Coach yeah. Bud yeah. used about you. Um, that really stood out to me was a clinician <laughs> talking about your kind of love for putting on basketball clinics and that level of kind of teaching and that being something where you kind of come to the fore and even a lot of players at the NBA level um, players you've coached in Australia I've seen talk about a lot of coaches they tell you what to do but they don't necessarily tell you why to do it is this the kind of time in your career where it feels like it's an opportunity to go and do some more of that teaching? And is that something that to you, even after all of these years coaching at the highest level of the game, you still get a lot of joy out of? There are probably three phases to the answer. And number one is be a servant and make that your top priority and don't walk in the door and then change the, the, the priority on, on whomever's looking for information. So it's really important to ask questions and listen so you can do a quick needs assessment of what they need because they're more important than you are if you're truly a servant. And then the second part of that is is that come in with smorgasbord and palms to the sky, allow them to pick off what they choose to pick off and leave it there. And then the last part is, is that it's a player's game and the the – the ambition because of social media competition, AAU ball, uh, there's a lot at stake um, for a lot of people. And if you understand that, you're trying to be vulnerable with the players so that they understand that you had a similar experience. And uh, as you present things to them when they're vulnerable or having trouble with their confidence, whether it's Middleton, Holiday, Giannis, uh, Brooke, uh, those, those people and everybody else on that team, you, you want to let them know that, you know, they're human first and then professional second, because if you do it the other way, you'll never get across the moat with a professional basketball player. Is that something that, 
you feel has evolved or has that changed in any way, say from when you were first a head coach at Cal Lutheran, true to if we want to keep to same kind of age groups in college, your your most recent <laughs> stint as head coach at Loyola Marymount. Is that something right. where has it completely transformed or is it just to you coaching always comes down to this fundamental level of human to human interaction and guidance and encouragement and the relationships that are built on that. Well, I, you know, whether somebody's 36 years old and, you know, a, a veteran and an all-star or what have you, whatever their resume is, every one of them had a parent parents or a foster parent in some way. And you go in with the understanding that they came from somewhere. So the change is always within the parenting. Uh, whether a kindergartner goes to school or not. And then generations are defined by four years of high school, three, if you will. But you get a new generation evolving all the time. That's all you really need to know without the, the science of it. So, yes, it has changed unequivocally. And it is just how people receive information and and how to penetrate uh, some of the evolution of uh, the fact that the majority of people, whether it's an NBA locker room or a high school locker room, they've never worked a job where they paid taxes by the time they get to your voice. And so the, by that, there are a lot of inherents or pluses having a job and having to have somebody take some of your paycheck for something bigger than you. And uh, whether you agree with that or not is not the point is that it's really important to understand that in that evolution, people learn and have different desires, but they have the exact same aspirations. They want to be loved and they want to be appreciated. And those two variables will never, ever change. So if you have those premises and you work off of that, um, even if you can't get to it on the day, if you make yourself available to this, the biggest superstar in the world, uh, eventually they'll come your way and you can communicate something very important to them. And if they're only after basketball importance and want to be helped during a game where they're really struggling, well then deliver the information, you know, don't, don't try and bring a 15 minute speech to a one second answer. Speaking of everyone coming from somewhere, you come from Alaska which traditionally has not always been known as basketball country, although you've you've done your part to put it on the map <laughs> in a whole all. variety of ways. Um, You're right. I, I came across a really interesting quote you gave, which made me laugh, which was that you, you knew you wanted to be a coach from when you were a puppy. Uh, so what was it about coaching or what was it, I guess, about your parents or role models or figures in your life that, kind of made you view that kind of role as something you wanted to aspire to from an early age. Right. Right. Mother that was unconditional, supportive in my choices to be an athlete. Father who was an athlete who evolved to becoming a high risk surgeon, but nonetheless, he loved athletics and sport in general. So they had a keen interest uh, to create an environment where that was welcomed in our home. Second would be the coaches that I ran into when I was tiny were loving and they created play and competition that, that, that was 
um, process related. So you could leave the gym, even if you got your ass handed to you and know that you had a good time, you know, and, and, and then what's linked to that is uh, your, your buddies, you know, you created and had, Hey, do you want to play some kickball in the background or we'll play some football or we'll play some baseball or we'll play some basketball. And so those, those relationships lasted to our wedding where the entire crew on my side, we grew up together since the second grade. (laughs) So, you know, when you're getting your chops busted as you're saying your vows, it's heartfelt and it's fun and it's what life's supposed to be about, lifelong friendships. So that's what sport presented for me. It would be remiss of me not to say that you were a nominee for the Alaska Sports Hall of Fame. You have a whole variety of really incredible milestones that I assume make you proud. The first player to play Division uh, Division One from Alaska, the first to play in the NCAA tournament, uh, to yep. coach a national champion, to be named National Association yep. of Basketball Coaches Coach of the Year. Is that something that you've kind of taken with you as it being a place where, I guess, in the, the coaching community or just the college brotherhood, the NBA brotherhood, you don't necessarily look around you and see, well, everyone here is from Alaska. Everyone here has gone the route I've gone. Has that been something you've carried with you as an extra point of pride throughout your career? Yeah, I'd like to say I I did it in a glorious way. <laughs> uh, a chip on the shoulder coming out of Alaska because everything was biased that you can't play, you can't do this. You So it was a, a mighty struggle. And obviously the upshot of that was that it, it created a, within me a competitor uh, that was with luck able to ascend to national championships, world championship, and uh, being able to run an ultra marathon and finish it uh, because I always felt less than coming from Alaska and it was a blessing, but I always carried my teachers and my friends and my family on my shoulder, proudly so. And the expectations were, not only family-wise, but if those coaches paid attention to you for your life, you could always call them and pick up off each other's sentences. And because you were from such a small town of 30,000 when I was a boy to a town of Fairbanks that exploded because of the discovery of oil uh, on, in Prudhoe Bay and the North Slope, um, the complexion changed radically. So that's a story which everybody has is whatever your last name is, learn to be, you know, a carry it with great dignity and class and advance the stake up the mountain, both with your last name and also is that just through fortune, I was able to carry the flag of first on many fronts for the state of Alaska. And that was something you never think about. But later on, a writer said, did you know? And, you know, it's not something I kept track of, but as, as things unfolded, I've been very, very fortunate about be around great coaches and great parents and, and great teachers. So you got to have some luck. I mean, John Wooden and Pete Newell, two of the greats from Mount Rushmore coaches were in my life and they directed me at one point or time. And then uh, Ed Gorgian and Brian Gorgian of, of Australian fame, and, uh, you know, Greg, the leading scorer in high school in the United States of America, they were all shaped my life 
And, and so I was, how the heck does a guy from Alaska have in front of him Pete Newell for the better part of 20 years? I worked as big man camp and his son was the best friend, Pete Jr. And have all these wild experiences to be with George Carl and, of course, Bud and, of course, a lot of other pros, uh, coaches and college coaches, just great college coaches, uh, whether it was Don Meyer or Bobby Knight or this guy. John Chaney was somebody that was instrumental in directing me in my life and my career. And, and Tim Gergovich, who's the human whisper of the NBA, no better assistant. He and Ron Adams are held in the highest esteem in the NBA, and anybody that's a coach knows Coach Gergovich. Well, at 21, he put his arm around me and said, kid, come from, come with me. And so I had some really good coaches shape me. Well, that's one of the things that really stands out about your journey overall is all of these notable coaches and players even that you've crossed paths with. And also, yes, I guess, yeah. the really interesting stops you've got to take along the way to go from where they started out, your alma mater, Loyola Marymount, um, I read, and I want you to confirm whether this is true or not, that after your first season, you were cut, <laughs> but yeah, you kept coming was, to practice and yeah, you, you found your way right. back onto the team. Yeah, yeah. Um, the story of my junior year, because I was a junior college player, was that I was offered a walk-on position only because I was best friends with the 6'6", all-American guard that they wanted and I knew how to make him happy and pass him the ball so a good word was put into the assistant coach and so I, I weaseled my way into a tryout and then made the team got a scholarship we had a horrible year and then the new coach called seven of us in and took our scholarships in one fell swoop <laughs> so just because I loved the game I kept going uh, to the gym because I knew they had to try out a lot of different people and recruit them on those visits. And so they had odd numbers at times where it wasn't 10 or it wasn't eight, it was seven or it was nine. And so they just needed me to round out uh, an even number so they could go up and down. So anyway, through that experience, by the time Christmas of my senior year, I had a scholarship again. So it was this crazy story. <laughs> of hanging around like a bad habit, basically. And then we ended up playing in the NC2As, uh, you know, the year before we won three games. In the history of college basketball, there's never been a turnaround like that, if you look at the annals. And, uh, you know, so my point is uh, ESPN started broadcasting the games in 1980, so my parents actually got to see me play against Arizona State. Uh my senior year in 1980, and that was the first time they broadcast the big dance. And you can look that up. It's true. And so it was a pretty awesome experience to go from hell to heaven, so to speak, <laughs> in, in a, uh, two years, because I was remanded back to hell after my junior year. <laughs> and uh, I found a ladder and got out with help from a lot of coaches. And then from there, the following season, your coaching journey begins, right? You you become an assistant. Yes. Uh, yep. What was what was that transition like initially? I feel like it's something we see a lot of players do even at a higher level quite quickly. But you never you never necessarily hear all of the ins and outs. I'm sure you had teammates that you're now an assistant coach on the staff. 
what what is it like when you go from player to coach like that and the adjustment period when you're first stepping into that world and when it's something that as we said you had kind of aspired to three things because you could go on and I'll, I'll just bullet point it one is fear trepidation because of the things you alluded to those are your friends and you're having to give them instructions and so that's always a little bit dicey especially when you've had beers with them uh the second thing would be that you don't have a you don't have a base of information from a coaching standpoint and then the other thing about the old saying is is that you know you can eat a fish for a day but teach somebody to to do that and you can eat for a lifetime is that I had no, uh, you know, file on, on where to stand in the gym and, and what information to impart. So, you know, you're starting from ground zero. And so that's humbling. And then three is the fact is that, you know, you're walking a thin line because those very players that become vulnerable during the year will come to you first because they feel comfortable communicating with you instead of the head coach or assistants because of the authority uh, factor, their authoritative figures. And so you have information and some of that you have to parcel and not bring forward to the head coach, you know, and yet, you can tip or nudge the head coach that a guy's struggling. And that's very helpful for a head coach. Sounds like a great crash course in the kind of defined balance of relationship managing as a, as a coach, maybe it's, it throws you into the deep end a little bit more because the relationships are, are already, they already exist. And as you said, maybe in a different level, I haven't shared some, some beers with the guys before. Yeah. And you know, there are two roads, to education and, and people that are wily coyotes, uh, be it academic or people who have been raised on the streets. And both are very valuable. And I don't see them as, you know, mutually exclusive. But how I see them is, is that I was basically raised on the streets and was in an academic environment and applied some of that to common sense, but the majority of what I was raised on was instinct and, and uh, make a way out of no way. And, and, and that's the way I was raised. My parents did the same thing and you were expected to do your chores. And if you didn't, you got a spanky. It was black and white in our home. And uh, I'm not saying that's the only way to go, not at all, but I'm saying that's the way I was raised. And then, then you bought your own clothes uh, and participated in that endeavor uh, from the sixth grade on. That was tradition in our home. And the purpose of how our parents raised us was to create an independent soul so that you could function in a very mean and difficult world at times because life is going to give you some punches. And then uh, so all of that mechanism was on the, you know, I would call the outside the school lines kind of street smarts, um, which evolved over a lot of mistakes, you know? And so when I started as a coach, I made all the mistakes plus one that anybody could make, but I was a quick learner. One, not to repeat it uh, over and over. And two is use your street smart instincts first, because when you're coaching in the NBA or college or high school or whatnot, they don't have a book for all of the answers you need to come up with. <laughs> You're going to be dealing with 
a lot of complicated situations and you've got to use your, your guile and, and your smarts first and then uh, rely on the academic side of things later. But I think considering your life and your upbringing and talking about, you know, how your parents raised you and all that, the fact that you tie that in with coming from Alaska and breaking this, you know, I guess, barrier in, in that sense of breaking through in the basketball world, it kind of, it feels like it really helped you get to where you were or where you are and your entire life's work and everything like that. Well, what you learn through that tra- those travels of what you're talking about is that, you know, my father had an unbelievably positive attitude at the dinner table. And as frustrated as I was with any problem, he knew how to flip that problem, not give me the answer, but nudge me towards the answer. And it was always, he was like, you can do this. This is going to be okay. And that's what I was left with. And as a coach, I don't care what the situation is to be uh, a person that blesses people with positivity, even though the NBA player may not buy it at that time. They're the ones that will find you in the hallway or grab you and thank you in an intimate way because you were upbeat. And I think that at the end of the trail, coaching being done at this juncture for me, 66 years old, um, I'm a very upbeat person because of the journey and um, having doors closed in my face right from jump uh, just only taught me to, hey, persevere. Um, yeah, that sucks, but it's time to, you know, get off that whining and go forward because there's a way to get her done. And that's what happened in the career. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
let's take uh, something of a whistle stop through some of the the stops that perseverance um, led you to because <laughs> there's plenty of them <laughs> for sure it's some really fascinating ones uh, to start with your first head coaching job at Cal Lutheran that's where I believe you first crossed paths with coach Bud then a player for Pomona is, yes. is that correct uh, yes we don't tend to hear a whole lot about Bud the player so what are what are your memories of Mike Budenholzer the player from his from his days at Pomona and then even just your impressions of him as a person at that stage a very young well, man yeah yeah how he talks yeah. about you developed yeah. a, a lasting relationship really from kind of those early days yeah um could really shoot it so if you left him open he was putting it down two is he was a coach's son so he had really good spatial sense and knew how to play. Uh, three is he had calves that rubbed together. So he, he was a non-athlete. <laughs> I'm going to put that out there right now. <laughs> he played. He played. He played in a ditch. But uh, he was he was really good. Division three player. Uh, I was a division three coach, so I don't say that with any judgment whatsoever. And we met in the hallway after uh, we belly slapped them at their place. Um, you know, we, we, we had a really good team, talented Australians. And so, and it, the irony was, Bud ended up at San Antonio where they knew how to go get the foreign players and win NBA championships. So he can appreciate the fact that my, my wife knew his uh, brother, as she was an RA at Pomona and being a sage in, we knew that they were the smart ones. They, they, and uh, Caltech was in our league. And then you had Occidental was a very, really good school. So you had all these really smart kids you were playing against in Cal Lutheran. We were getting, uh, we had a team of, of, of guys that probably gave them a box of crayons coming in the front door. So we were, <laughs> we were, we were, we were we were uh, we looked different. We were really athletic, and, and so he came in the back hallway. An introduction was made, and he said, "Hey, you got all these foreign guys. Can I call you up? Because I'm thinking about going overseas and playing professionally. I have an opportunity." I said, "Of course." So we started talking, and in those days, you didn't have cell phones, so we would write letters to each other, and then uh, that ended up as he transitioned uh, to San Antonio. We just kept, you know, calling. He'd ask me questions. And uh, I loved his sense of humor, uh, obviously uh, his keen basketball mind. And also is he might be one of the nicest human beings in the world. It's, it's not pretense. He's a very nice man. So those are the reasons that, that the relationship stood the test of time. No, oh, we love to hear that. We'll circle back to some more talk about Bud and the books shortly. You mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned yeah. Australia. Um, all those Australian players, was that part of the, the connection or is that how the relationships were established that saw you in 1994, I believe, going yeah. to coach the Adelaide 36ers in the NBL? I was 21, becoming a graduate assistant in LMU, and the coaches that became the head coach, Ed Gorgian, his son played for Lindsey Gaze out of Melbourne. And he invited me over. He had fin just finished his career. And he's a couple years past. He had done some state league coaching. And then uh, he invited me over to work with his team. And so I took him up on that. I went to a very famous gym in Melbourne. 
and started working with his bigs or his guards as a 21 year old uh, and, and started doing a little mini clinics with his players and, and, and whatnot. And that didn't take me long to see all the talent that was over there. And before Randy Bennett was probably born, I was bringing players over. We were bringing players over from Australia. And then because the word got out that there there was this guy coming over uh, and through the connection of Brian Gorgian and another famous American coach over there, Bruce Palmer, they both recommended to the people at Adelaide, Australia, that they hire me. So they came over when I was the head coach at Cal Lutheran and interviewed me and then offered the job. And my wife and I uh, said, let's, we were romantics at hearts. I was an English major and she's just romantic in general. Uh, We said, let's pack up our boxes and go coach in the NBL. And, you know, some of the players were older than I was, you know, so it, and all of a sudden I was coaching on a sideline with, about 8,000 people, they, they turned out in Adelaide and they had a restaurant that seated 400 up above, very nice venue. And so I was the luckiest man in the world to be a youngster and coaching in the NBL uh, professionally, internationally, all of that. And I had no clue what I was doing. I was only five years as a head coach at Cal Lutheran, but to go and coach for your dinner uh, I quickly learned a lot of lessons, um, you know, and that was another chapter of taking high risk uh, and, and, you know, you don't do well, you get fired. That kind of a job from a division three that if I just behaved myself, I would have had that job for a lifetime. So, you know, uh, we decided to take a chance and roll the dice. And that was really quite the adventure for that time. It feels like something that's it's a more common kind of leap the coaches take now. Bucks fans, for example, will remember Chase Buford, the recent coach of the Wisconsin Herd, who has very successfully coached the Sydney Kings in, in recent years. But did you find that one of the things I, as you probably can pick up from my accent, I am uh, not from the United States, I'm from Ireland. And one of the things I've right. always found really, really interesting is when coaches around college basketball and the NBA talk about differences they see in whether it be fundamentals how they're coached overseas and um, there's often this kind of idea that coaching in Europe can focus more on fundamentals in a way that differs from maybe some of the habits that can develop by way of say the competitiveness of AAU what did you find when you went to Australia you obviously had plenty of experience with Australian players by that point but about their culture and the development strategies of their players well, the way they're they're raised, uh, the Australians typically uh, have a strong opinion. They've been around sport their whole life, and they're highly organized, obviously, in the way they treat their children in terms of sport. And they take great pride in coming out of the womb. The children, uh, female, male, are expected to participate uh, because their clubs are related to their suburbs. So they pay the taxes for the facilities totally a little bit different than the way our system is. The bottom line is, is that when you hit the shores, anything, we're an expatriate, you have to adapt and assimilate to the culture that is in front of you, as opposed to you giving directives of the way of the world. And I started out the way of the world, but quickly learned 
that that's not the right way to go. And so I was lucky enough to be able to navigate that and have a good three years uh, in Australia. But coaching the Australian athlete also is that they, they play really hard, but they also party really hard, (laughs) you know, uh, once they leave the facility, just let them uh, have their own way with whatever they're going to do. And as long as you, you know, treat them like adults, uh, they come good in the morning. And so that's different for a college coach because, you know, you're on campus and you're responsible for someone's behavior. I don't care if it's 500 miles away. He's a part of your program. And if something happens in a negative way, uh, you know, you're going to bed fearful, even if everything's good that night, that something could happen because young adults are young adults. And uh, in the pro level, you learn to manage, but not educate as much. And, and management is difficult uh, because there's a lot of restraint of what not to say and be efficient with your words because they're men. And uh, we're, so those adjustments have to be made on the fly. And uh, Australia taught me how to adjust on the fly. Do you think that was beneficial when you came back to the college game then, having had Big that time. experience? It, it really kind of well, opened your eyes or changed your yeah. approach in some ways? Yes, it did. Um, I, I wasn't as tight on the regs, the rules. Uh, one, uh, you know, trusted people more. Uh, two is that, or you know, it gave us a, a direct pipeline to Australians that wanted to go to college. That was a real yearning for uh, a certain portion of the Australian athlete. So we were able to pick off really good players, won two national championships on the backs of those pillars called Australians for sure and vied for a couple more. We lost one. And then we, we, we had a team that won 30 in a row and we got upended on our way to going for another one in, in the final four. So, but I can unequivocally tell you that it opened the gates for that. And then the last part is, is that an appreciation for the fact that um, we knew how to coach another way and it was going to be okay. So it opens your eyes to not being as judgmental about how somebody coaches at Texas or Miami or, you know, down the street. Um, Because I think coaches quietly think their way is best. And and, and that taught me not to think that way. You mentioned those two national championships um, with Metro State. One of the players on those championship winning teams is uh, <laughs> a name that is likely to become a lot more familiar to Bucks fans in the in the near future, which is Patrick Matombo, who is now an, right. an assistant coach with the Bucks. Yeah. What can you tell us both about him as a player and then, I guess, uh, more as a person and what we should expect from him as Bucks fans get to to know him more as a, a familiar face of the new staff? Two or three things that are indelible about Patrick is that um, he's a brilliant student and he spoke five languages. So his father was an academic guy who's a professor in his own right um, in Belgium. And, and so he came from great education. Second is that he had the highest shot pocket known to mankind, kind of like a Bill Cartwright, but uh, prettier looking shot 
But we learned that his 18-footer, there wasn't anybody better in the nation uh, with an 18-foot jumper. So we found an, an offense that highlighted Patrick, and he was the MVP of the national championship game uh, and was very responsible for us winning the ring uh, as that premier player when he was a senior. And the third part of the story was he was awful to coach for his first two years because <laughs> he wouldn't listen to anybody. and He didn't want to acquiesce to our culture, the way we did things in the gym. And it was always in my office. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that with an aggressive tone? And, and so my point of is I had to and be patient with Patrick because he evolved. And I find that the higher the intellect, the more um, salient they are about, you know, digging their feet in. You have to prove to them, which is a good quality, not a bad quality, but you have to prove to them that you're competent. And Patrick basically put me out in the porch for two years and put me in a timeout before he gave me permission to coach him. So <laughs> those are the three things I remember. And Patrick and, and, and his wife, Magali and Molly, we just went to the Green Bay Packer game. A uh, good relationship with Matt LaFleur, thanks to Bud and the Packers and John Horse. But uh, that relationship's gone to a great place. So we flew out there and had a great dinner with, with, with Patrick and his wife. So, you know, I want to be clear that we have a, a lifelong relationship and, and a, a deep love for each other. Well, that's great. I think we're all very excited and I've been excited about everything we've heard. And I think you, you only add to that for what Patrick can bring to to the books. Um, speaking yeah. of of another books figure, this is a former coach, but your first NBA uh, opportunity came as an assistant to a former books coach, George Carl, with the Denver Nuggets. Right. That was a that was a really exciting time for the Nuggets and kind of an upwardly kind of mobile franchise. You went on a really strong run under George Carl. You're of course in kind of the early days of Carmelo Anthony coming to the fore as a real superstar in the league. Alan Iverson was there. What are your memories right. like of of working with George Carl at that time and working with that group of players and that that team that really went on to be a pretty consistent fixture in the West and win a lot of games over a number of years? Yeah, Coach Carl uh, is unfiltered. He says what's <laughs> on his heart, so he's colorful. Second thing is nobody in the NBA is quicker or better on the grease board at adjusting during a game. He was unbelievable at moving players and trying different things during a game because he saw mismatches because he was under Don Nelson. And Don Nelson is known as the best creator of the mismatch via the pick and roll in the history of the game. He, he's, he's, you know, by himself for the technocrats out there. So he was really good that way. And then third is he was a cowboy. He was really good with difficult people because he was efficient with how he did practice and he had an understanding of maybe some of the wildness within certain players because he was wild when he was a player. He was a barroom brawler. He was tough. He was a tough guy from Pittsburgh who drank Iron City beer, which is toilet water, I might add. <laughs> um, but he's he's. You know, he's another friend for life, and, and uh, uh, I, I love him because of his, he's just so colorful and broke the mold of what you would consider a typical NBA coach. Something that uh, I noticed um, 
I guess it's really there as a true line throughout your career, but you've you've spoken about it yourself is that you like the the idea of kind of going into a storm and you like tough situations and you like you like a challenge. I think you mentioned your ultra marathon earlier. It seems like something in your personal yeah. life, even you you like challenges. I don't think there were many challenges in NBA history that were greater than taking on the Charlotte Bobcats head coaching job after they had won just seven games the season prior. <laughs> um, you, I believe, were seven and five to start that that season. So you had matched yeah. the previous season's win total very, very quickly. And then injuries became a factor and things slowed down from there. But what, what do you remember about that time? And obviously getting that opportunity from Michael Jordan, who I, I I believe really felt you were the the right kind of personality that was quite a young team to come in and really kind of turn that around and shape things in a different direction. Right, right. Well, Gerald Henderson got hurt. And, you know, when you're on the sideline, you're carrying in your heart. You know that that one player can't go down or it's going to be – rocky at best and we did come out of the shoots and we had a good confidence and gerald broke his foot um when we were playing the wizards and so that i knew that that was gonna make it tough then we went on an 18 game losing streak and then we beat the bulls uh just after christmas uh to dislodge ourselves from that and then we had an uptick at the end which if you lost your team, you're not going to have an uptick at the end. And we won some games to get to 21. The mark probably should have been 28. So that's the formal side of things. I was brought in to bring a bunch of young guys through. And the mandate was play the young guys. And we have some bad contracts. And you just sit on those guys at the end of the bench. But those guys, veterans, weren't happy about that. And so, I mean, it was just a difficult ride all the way through, but really proud of how Kimba Walker evolved, Bismack evolved. We had a guy named Taylor who, who you know, he evolved. And so I just stuck to uh, the blueprint of the youth and um, learned a lot, made some big mistakes in terms of overcoaching. And, um, you know, I, th- I looked at it as a glorious ride. Uh, I wasn't surprised when they told me I wasn't going to be back. And I looked at it as a beautiful chapter in what I learned. I, 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 I wasn't bitter. It gave me a chance to receive a handsome salary for a year off and go around the country and watch really good coaches, uh, you know, do their thing. And that was a great opportunity. Example given, I got to watch Thibodeau because of Jeff Gundy and my friendship with him of getting me in and he doesn't let anybody in his practices, but because of his relationship with Jeff, I was able to crack the code and spend four days in Tom Thibodeau's practice when he was a head coach of the bulls. And that was really rewarding when, and you know, it's the middle of the year and it's important. And so there are no secrets. And so my point is, is that coaching Charlotte, it couldn't have been a, a bigger, or better blessing. And then, Obviously, Michael Jordan uh, is complex, uh, multidimensional, and um, one of one. How he handles uh, meetings, how he uh, envisions life, um, and uh, who he is as a man, all of it is fascinating. 
And to have that opportunity to be around him for that extended period of time was a real positive. So, yeah, there you go. And then, obviously, you go back to your alma mater, Loyal Marymount, six years there. Um, what kind of brought you from going back to home, as they say, and then you get this opportunity to come to Milwaukee? Obviously, Bud asking you to come <laughs> on the coaching staff, right. having that chance. Right. Like, what? I guess what kind of necessitated from your perspective or, or the events that happened that brought you to Milwaukee and back to the NBA as a assistant coach back in what, 2020, probably like fall 2020. Right. And it, you know, everything, you know, uh, it, and it, it gets almost tiresome to hear, you know, at any talk, whether it's Anthony Robbins or whatever, you are your relationships. But that's exactly what happened. I'm just minding my own business, charting out kind of where I'm going to, what clinics I'm going to speak to, what retirement looks like from LMU, et cetera, in a, in a good place in La Jolla, <laughs> we live. And so, you know, and then the call came about offensive rebounding and zone defense. And that was a Trojan horse. The next day he called up and he said, hey, I, that, that information is important to me, but I was just kind of trying to check you out to see if the knife was still sharp. Um, <laughs> and would, would, you, would, you be, would you be interested in, in coming this way? And um, I said, sure, you know, without all of the noise, but it ended up being yes. And so, as you know, COVID was at that time. So I got on a plane and landed at uh, just the end of November, just after Thanksgiving. It was freezing in, in Milwaukee, and I'm going from California. And then I stayed in a hotel and, and, you know, hadn't sessed out an apartment yet. Molly, my wife, was taking care of that. So, you know, I, I, I headed out the door with an, an okay jacket on, and it's only a mile away. And I froze my ass off getting to the <laughs> practice facility. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so anyway, that started the journey. But, you know, that year was crazy because all of a sudden confetti's coming down. You have the better part of 300,000 people. And Bud comes up and I'm behind a speaker and I'm on the stage and PJ's going crazy. And, and, and he puts his arm around me and he goes, uh, nice call seven months ago, huh? <laughs> I looked at him. <laughs> I'm dying laughing. I'm going, there isn't anybody in the universe that's luckier than me. I swear to God, it was so crazy and so much fun. And as you guys know, that day, the weather was awesome. And the vibe of that parade for Milwaukee and the state of Wisconsin was insane, was absolutely insane. And, and I, you know, you know, you can live on that vapor for the rest of your life. And the, you know, like I said, is Milwaukee, the nuance of Milwaukee is very special. And until you've lived there, it is almost futile to talk to somebody outside the boundaries of Wisconsin to explain um, you know, how great Milwaukee is one and two is the, the, the homespun kind of family atmosphere inside the building 
that Peter Fagan and John Horst have created is unbelievable. I think too, like obviously you talking about just how crazy that year was. Did they have they made the move for Drew before you got there, or was that afterwards? Remember when I mentioned earlier about a guy named Tim Gergovich? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, course, yeah. 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 He called me up when they acquired him, and it was after, you know, um, things were solidified with him after I had said, yeah, you know, I'm going to be a buck. <laughs> he called me that day and said, you guys are going to win the whole thing. And he is not that guy that exaggerates. And he said, given health of your guys, he will be the difference maker. And I will say this unequivocally, and no one but no one may agree with me, but as great as Giannis's block was, that was one play. People have to rewind this whole thing and remember that Drew Holiday went down and took the ball off Booker when he was going to score. And that was a pivotal play where he brought it down and lobbed it to Giannis and he dunked and that's on every highlight known, but he, he took that game. That was, that was Drew holiday winning that game for the bucks. And he did the same thing to Chris Paul. And when you talk about pivotal plays that were made with defense that are not sexy, that no one will ever go to. I just think that Drew holiday was the difference maker in terms of us winning that trophy. And most people will say, you know, that it's Giannis, 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 and they've got a, the, the case. I mean, I, I'm not going to argue, I, but I sit there and I go, oh, my God, folks, this guy is nothing <laughs> but, a, uh, a, you know, a killer at game time. When, it, when the game's on the line, boy, oh, boy, he's very, very special. I think from our you... perspective as Bucks fans, we'll say that that steal was very, very sexy. We remember it. I think I think Bucks yeah. fans, you're right. It's it's one of those things you could see maybe nationally, you'll see snippets of the highlight and you'll get Giannis finishing the alley oop. Uh yeah. but it's yeah, uh, Bucks fans think of the whole play and it is that moment. And I remember watching, as I'm sure you did from the bench, just that kind of surge of energy when Drew does that, when he just steals the ball away from someone and he did it. A couple of times in those crucial moments, as you said, in in that. Yeah, and he did it against Atlanta, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, the buildup is that we know as coaches that, you know, like I said, is every game has a pivotal moment, uh, you know, that's playoffs and a a tough game where it's, it's close. And I will unequivocally tell you that quietly, humbly in that year, he was alone responsible at a pivotal time of making at least 10 to 14 plays that turn the game. He just had an uncanny ability to do that. And I'm sure Chris Middleton will verify that. And what I just said, Chris is really, really smart, but he also found out like all of us that drew is pretty doggone special. What about that run? Because, I mean, there's so many touch points with just the playoff run alone that we could go to that, like, you – we we saw it on TV screens. We saw it in the Deer District. We saw it in the championship parade and stuff like that. But right. you had a front right. row seat. What, what right. about that run stands out to you and just, you know, about that team, about that year, about that time? Uh, just that everybody on that team accepted their roles. PJ was never going to be a guy, even though he could make corner threes. 
that was going to get in the way of the offense. And he knew his job and he did his job. And Chris Middleton was the same way, Um, you know, and it was, you know, Bud did a great job of, uh, along with the assistants of designing a system that fit. And Giannis is, you know, a North and South player. He has a liability from the three. His free throws can be dicey at best, but there isn't anybody in the history of the game, North and South, that has played it quicker or more forceful than Giannis. And the other thing is, is that Giannis in the top five in the history of the game in terms of competitive spirit. So, you know, to build around that and make it work is really difficult, really, really difficult. And, I, and, and my point is, my memory is, is that guys, we never had a problem in the locker room. We didn't win all our games. You know, we just, there wasn't any of this, you know, it's my ball, it's my whatever. And that was a collective uh, grace that that group had. Not not just Giannis. People will say, well, he, you know, he he drove that bus. No, he didn't. It was everybody drove that bus ego wise. They 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 knew what their job was and they did their job. And I would say that that everybody deserved credit uh, player wise that, that put the uniform on, because if you don't have that balance, when you get to the thin air, you'll get exposed. You can't hide things when you have liabilities that are in the locker room. They come out in the playoffs, and we didn't have it. We just didn't have it. Do you think the part of that was down to maybe a clarity of focus, or did you feel when you arrived? Because the the season before was really really as formidable, I think, as the books have ever looked in their history throughout the regular season. Then COVID came crashing into the NBA as well as all of our lives. And the Bucks had such an eventful time in the bubble, such a disappointing end to ta- their time in the bubble. Did you feel when you came in that this is a team that right. they had this singular focus? Maybe maybe more yeah. so for the disappointment that they were just coming off the back of. Well, if you look at any championship team, uh, 95% of them have a heartfelt season um, that's painful. And that is the very glue that allows them to transcend to win a championship. So you're right on it. And the second thing about the bubble, which people have to remember, you set your criteria up for any discussion. If you take the fact that the Bucks ultimately got beat by Miami, that they were the spear, the fulcrum for Black Lives Matter. You can't mm-hmm. bypass that and the drain of being the point people and the pressure of doing the right thing is not always the easy thing. And so I think every player, coaching staff, Peter Fagan, John Horst, right through the organization would say quickly that Black Lives Matter and taking a stand and the Bucks being the satellite, the guiding light, the lighthouse for that, the takeaway was, you know, that and Giannis was hurt. The same thing happened last season is that people want to say, well, you still should have won. Well, in the playoffs, Jimmy Butler goes down. Miami's not going to the finals. And you've mm-hmm. got to have your best players available. 
And sometimes that involves the training room, meaning that they're not in there with a torn ACL or, or whatever, they're not injured. And so those are facts. People go, oh, those are just excuses. No, 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 no. They're facts. And when you bring facts and carve up emotion, there are reasons and results. And so what you're pointing to is there was cause and effect the year before, but the Bucks, the year I was there, embraced the pain, said, we're going to go win this thing. And anything outside the stadium did not interfere with the pursuit of that. The second point that needs to be made, Giannis goes down to injury. We're playing the Hawks. We opened up 0-2. And now Middleton and Holiday say, along with Brooke, say, we're going to take care of Giannis. We're going to make his dream come true, and we're going to win these next two games. And as you guys look at the stats, all three of those guys went off. You know, uh, Brooke being the best rim protector or goalie in hockey terms in the entire NBA, and there goes Holiday, and there goes Middleton uh, with scoring, and they just went nuts. Now you come back, here comes Giannis. And it's a, you know, made for movie kind of uh, ending, you know, and we know that KD doesn't step on the line. We're not talking right now about a championship. And we're very glad that we are talking about a championship. But you yeah. mentioned yeah. you mentioned you yeah. could kind of ride in the vapors of that parade for the rest of your life. I think that's part of how we all feel as fans, too. And particularly for a franchise like the books, it had been such a long wait and I think that's that's something that probably bore itself out in the celebrations, too, that everyone could see just how much it meant to the city, to the state, to everyone who's invested so much time and love in Milwaukee Bucks basketball. Right. The Packers have given the state a Super Bowl. The University of Wisconsin football has been dynamic at times and really lifted the state when they've been in a desert, so to speak, and the Bucks haven't been operating in a given season the way people wanted uh, what have you, but it, it, it really is a collection and, and Wisconsin basketball, Marquette basketball, and that's on both sides, women and men. I don't want to just say that, but there had, that the state is, 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 uh, has a wealth of athletic teams that make that state proud. It was our moment to lift the state and, and make everybody in the community a dear community, a community that's had a lot of of, of difficult times. But Milwaukee, uh, I would say, has the biggest heart of any city I've been in that, that you know, has scar tissue on it. Yeah, but it's beautiful scar tissue. And I'm telling you what, uh, you know, I put my money on a Milwaukee fan before any fan that I've ever experienced. And I've been a part of some great fans. But they are as hardy as you can find in the world. We love to hear that. We'd be remiss not to ask you about the big books news. Um, the trade, yes. Right. Drew, yep. Drew Holiday, Grayson yep. Allen moving on. Damian Lillard becoming a book. Um, really a blockbuster deal that has massive ramifications for a whole bunch of teams around the NBA and the championship race. Right. Ripple what effect. Do, right. What do you see from a, a coaching fit, though, in terms of the change obviously it's it's going to transform the way the books look it'll it'll lead to a natural kind of lending more towards maybe an offensive focus than a defense but we've talked a lot about drew how special how great he was books fans 
really, I think, will love him forever and are sad to see him go while also very excited what a, what a player like Damian Lillard could bring to this team alongside Giannis and Chris and Brooke and everyone else. Well, I think you have to take sport, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, um, hockey. I don't want to forget hockey, but um, whatever professional sport it is, is that the wheel is speeding up and the money is so extreme now that if you don't get busy evolving, you can fall behind uh, in a quick hurry. It doesn't always mean that everybody made the right move, but not to take the chance is not to be a general manager in the NBA or a president or an owner. Um, They have to take chances because everything is speeded up because of social media expectations. Uh, You win a championship, the downside of winning one is everybody's impatient for the next one. People need to remember it took 50 years to get that done with Hall of Fame players, I might add, if you know your history. My point is they're really hard and they're doubly hard when you're a small market like Milwaukee. So now they made the move um, and the move's been made. It really isn't about a, a discussion of, 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 of plus or minus, if you will. It's about what's underneath that is they took a chance. They've taken a chance. There'll be an adjustment period, but it's just not going to be instant coffee with Lillard because, you know, he requires the ball at times. Um, he moves different than Drew did. And then so spatially, how to stay out of Giannis's way at times is difficult. And, you know, uh, Lillard is a personality that he is deferential and is going to be worried about how he's perceived by Middleton, Brooke, and, and obviously Giannis. They'll get comfortable. They'll be fine. But there's a, there's a growth process that has to, see, you know, take place. And so there'll be some hiccups. And you know, everybody just has to be patient with the process. And nobody wants to hear that. But the reality of a win or a loss that they weren't a game they weren't supposed to lose is going to happen. And as sure as I'm sitting here, but the move's been made and it's all about today and tomorrow. And, and Drew holiday is going to be fine. Thank you very much. Everybody's clamoring to grab, grab mm-hmm. him, uh, you know, and he's going to be fine. Does that mean that today he isn't upset and that his wife, Lauren is having to deal with, you know, another move and all that. Well, you know, um, they'll be fine because they're really competent people. They're classy people, and they understand that the NBA is just that. You know, the money has responsibility attached to it, and it has risk. So everybody understands that when you take the money, then the other side of it is is sometimes you got to move. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there you are. You've been incredibly gracious with your time, Coach. We're going to get a, get you out of here in just a second, but there's one thing we have to talk about before we let you go, and that is your your Twitter. Um, I don't know how aware you are of the fact that you are this kind of renowned social media figure within the basketball world, certainly within book circles. A lot of joy was gleaned from the detail you, you'd kind of dish out, the look behind the curtains. Um, I'll also say, I, I know I've read you have a keen interest in poetry, but the language and the metaphors you'd frequently use. Um, I was in doing research for this article or for this conversation. I found an article dating back to 2017, even highlighting your account as, you know, the place to be in 
um, basketball coaching circles on Twitter. What is what is Twitter given to you or how aware have you been of the kind of the following and the joy and the the information that people have gleaned over the years from that? How have you found the world of social media to give you maybe a new tool in terms of sharing your wisdom or teaching? Well, number one is it's a wonderful platform to give your information away. And that is my single greatest joy is to not be secretive. And then second is bring, oh, that's why they did what they did in, in, in that form without not being too disclosing. Uh, so that is all wrapped into number one of, of, you know, give your information away and bring a heightened sense of maybe those nuances that the average fan doesn't get. So I like that. The, the second part of it is on blowback. Sometimes away from the information, you're going to put some things out there where you're very clear and then you upset a number of people. And if you're going to choose to be on the platform, then take the heat. And my point is that periodically I've said to people that I've disagreed with is that it's a platform for discussion and disagreement. Just do it civilly. And I've been fortunate um, not to have been dealt with in, in, in extreme ways. You'll have an occasional, but why talk about that when the, the, the format has been really healthy? And so there's no need to, to get into that rest because you need just look in the mirror and say, well, I'm on the format. There are going to be some people that are going to be genuinely upset and disagree. And it's, it's incumbent on me not to be vitriolic in my responses. And then third is that I use it to read a lot and get tidbits and then explore whether it's a piece of film or an opinion or whatever, not only on basketball, but a myriad of topics where it leads me to go and get a book or find out for myself, talk to another person and uh, uh, direct message that person and then get into something that's been very beneficial for me. And so those are the three major reasons. But I just think that, you know, um, you and I both know that young adults are using the format ad nauseum now. And to see it as the enemy, um, be it you, albeit you have a responsibility to act civilly, I, you, know, they're, they're, you know, that's just got to be a standard. But I think that there's way more benefit to communicating with a young adult uh, by saying something about Instagram or something about Twitter or whatever medium it is. Music is a great format to pick up on somebody like me to figure out, okay, what is that musician trying to say or sound like or whatnot? And it gives you a bridge to communicate with uh, young adults. And so not to use it, is going to isolate you and you're going to become a dinosaur before your time. It's such a rare thing, particularly in, in the NBA circles to see someone in your position to kind of get that insight. So we've, we've really appreciated. We've really enjoyed uh, all of your pearls of wisdom and we continue to, to look forward to, to seeking them out and following along on your journey the rest of the way. So we really, really appreciate you giving us all this time. Talk to us about your journey, about your time with the books and uh, your your time with the books will be remembered forever, as much as you'll remember it. I think that's yes, that's the key thing we've we've covered here. It's such a special time, and it, it's great that 
you got to be a part of that and you got to to help play a part and bring that to all the rest of us as fans. Well, thank you. And it's a, a definitely a two-way street. And then as witnessed last weekend, we were in Milwaukee and we've only been gone a couple months. And so it's like old home week. And that three years was condensed into a magical feeling. And then the other thing is, is that at some point in time, the Bucks are going to renew that championship with an invite for everybody to come back to celebrate that moment, in a, in, in, even in its brevity. And to have that for all time for the Bucks and, and, and their history is something that all of us, fans included, can take great pride in. It's a celebration. It's joyful. Nothing more, nothing less. And then finally, to understand very pointedly that Giannis is a generational gem, uh, not only in his talent, but him as a man and how he has chosen to interact with the community of Milwaukee and vice versa. Milwaukee is responsible for Giannis resigning. Uh, no coach, no management. Yeah, he's going to get he got the same money or more for some other place. The fans need to take credit for those hellos, for those smiles, for just the power of a community that was his, that is his, and that goes back to you guys. You guys being having a format uh, where people can discuss varying opinions, not just my opinion or yours or what have you and air that out, that emulsifies them and wants them to buy a ticket to go see the Bucks play. And uh, again, that's pretty special. So thank you guys for creating a wonderful format. Thank you very much, thank Coach. And, and once again, right. thank you from all of the fans. We really appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, Jordan. We're post-conversation. The people, the people have heard it all. What do you have to say? How do you feel? I, I, I could see you, and this is not a luxury everyone else has, so I will speak to it. I could see you listening. I could see you taking it in. I could see you soaking in uh, the wisdom, but also just kind of the the great stories and the journey as Mike Dunlap laid it out for us. Yes, um, I was a kid at a candy store. I. I'm a host of this podcast, and on this podcast, I just watched a man talk and take it over, and I could not have wanted anything more than that. I just think it's he ha, Lee has led a very fascinating life, and obviously, he 
briefly mention that I, I we didn't talk about this pre or post interview, but um, he did mention that his coaching career has come to an end. So it's it did. very, very an interesting phase. Well, of... you know, I didn't take that up because I think when he says that he means one part of his coaching career because the other part of it, which yes. really comes across, is I don't think Mike Dunlap will ever not be coaching. Like no. I, he will be he finding coached, a way. He coached us through that. Podcast. He coached us through that podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm a better podcaster now than I was before. You know, podcasting with Mike Dunlap. But genuinely, I I don't think like he will ever not be coaching at some level in some way. He's clearly just a man who's addicted to coaching and to the game of basketball. But yes, you're right. He did. He did drop that tidbit in there, which also. Kind of not surprising. Life, no, no. You know, but not even just that. But you look at the journey; you can't ask for like a better pinnacle than being right at the front of it. Okay, it wasn't like the championship came in the final season, but winning a championship and hearing how he spoke about that and what that meant, and getting to go back and compete and contend, like. That that is the storybook kind of last stop on a journey like his as a professional coach. I say professional, not just meaning the pro game, but I mean someone who's devoting their life to coaching at the highest levels, like he did in the college game too. Yeah, I mean, literally every phase of his life, just to seamlessly go from player, college player, to coach, and to climb the ladder of becoming an a head coach at division three schools to a division two school to an NBA team assistant, or I mixed up like the timeline of it all, but just the, every, it, it was very fascinating just to listen to someone's life being distilled in an hour. <laughs> but like, you know, you just see like when you're driven by something like that, it is one very alluring just because you hear hearing something that has devoted their entire life to doing this profession and it leads you to so many different phases and places and everything like that but it also is comes with a lot of pressure and you know i think he kind of spilled like briefly touched on it at different times but you know i i the t- the comments about what he made about talk about milwaukee and everything like that um one obviously just pulled up my heartstrings, but uh, that's just very special. I mean, yes. like, I am not from Milwaukee. I've been there once in my life, but I have <laughs> been more than accustomed to. We're going through this cycle at the moment. Damian Lillard is going to have to come and play in Milwaukee and not Miami. To the way Milwaukee is talked about, to the way the books all got people like Evan Turner doing this even recently, like. From the most important to the least important people, <laughs> we've we've had a lot of this over the years, and people who are much older than us, and people who are books fans a lot longer than I have been, like I've had to go through that. I I really thought that was beautiful. I'll let you speak to that as a native of Milwaukee, but I I could even like one I got a lot of joy out of again watching you and watching you light up and seeing. I mean, someone talk about. One of the greatest moments in like the city's recent history and this moment of great community and collective spirit and how it touched him and how it's like a signature moment of his life and what 
that left him feeling about the city and the people and even the stuff he had to say about the fans and the the stuff about he says about how people like us feed into that for the fans just really really from someone who has been a part of three really special years and we've talked a lot about this through the prism of bud bud being the kind of the spearhead of the staff and of the change but that's even a nice insight into just all throughout that staff and everyone who was a part of that the kind of the bonds that were built and the way the city touched their hearts is not something that can be kind of glossed over or even really comprehended i think in the way that he puts it without kind of living it without knowing it without experiencing it i think we talked about this plenty for our pod prep because we do pod prep we're becoming official believe it or not at least i am oh wow (laughs) but no no no. i bet like at least i am now uh, Listen, Andrew is prepping for my other pod right now. I know. I've, I'm, I've got my best man on the job. <laughs> um, I kept making this this phrase, this title for Mike Dunlap, and I think it's ultimately true because it comes from this place. But the guy is an observer of everything, and by by nature, when you're a coach, you have to you observe things, and that is what you do. You observe how a player practices. You observe their habits, everything like that. Everything that he talked about being in Milwaukee, that spe- the specific era that, you know, he's coming out of, that we delicately talked about, but, you know, it, I didn't sense any ill will of his time being there. Why got Absolutely of, zero. Zero. Yeah. Um, I just think Part of the Milwaukee of it all, of the small market nature that it is, but the city itself of you think you see people transplants like coaches that hop from one city to another, another state, another team in the NBA, another team in the professional basketball world, because Mike Dunlap has been all over it. And you hope that these people adopt your home city and that eventually you could, you know, celebrate something like winning an NBA championship. The Bucks, as we all know, for a very long time, did not do any of that. They were, for many of our lifetimes, were further, or the farthest thing from that. That that was their life. So to see someone that was just a cog in the machine, but played a very important cog in the machine, um, it was just very interesting in just how he talked about the family atmosphere, what, how we think of these players and coaches that instill or create something like that. But he mentioned John Horace, Peter Fagan, and these people that, you know, we were podcasting when they were hired in some cases like John Horace, but they've been around there for a very long time and have learned things and observed things that they build out how the team, you know, interacts with one another, how everything is, the foundation is being laid and everything like that. And Mike Dunlap, which is why he has been such a a subject of fascination, is that we would see these peaks behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, is it we joke about it? Is this something that would the Bucks would actually want them to want to be out there or whatever thing like that? It doesn't matter because Mike Dunlap is no. But the the answer is absolutely not. Like. Um, I saw a lot of people giving the books credit in the last 24 hours for, you know, just how they moved in silence. And yes, they got the 
they got the Dame Lillard deal done. All the noise was in Toronto and Miami. Oh, jeez. <laughs> You've made that joke on the on the emergency pod. So that's certainly a factor. Um, like being honest, and it's probably part of why we have loved and come to kind of make Mike Dunlap into a cult mascot of sorts for winning six, because the books kind of closed off nature. Three years has been frustrating for us. I think frustrating for fans in some regards because they, they're so invested that we care so much that we want to know more. We want to have some sense of what's happening happening behind the curtain. Now, I think Mike Dunlap takes that to a, a different extreme. There are not many coaches doing what he does in sports anywhere. And he has been doing it from back in his days as a college coach. Um, I, I think it's a really, really cool and special thing. And I'm glad that he got to do it and document a lot of his time with the books. And I'm glad that we latched onto it. That his tweets are so eye-catching that it brought us to this conversation. Because I think it's it's a really, really cool. I have a Mike Dunlap tweet of the week to, that may have kind of... Love this. Sum up... Actually, I have two. Um, tweeted... Uh, let me go to the first, like, the earnest one. Tweeted September 24th, 2023 at 8.48 a.m. Transitions. We're all visitors whenever we are and our outcome meaning existence will end at some point. Thus, act the same way, with grace, dignity, manners, be it your entrance or exit, coaching, decorum, being someone's example, most important thing you can do for team and self. That's a Dunlap uh, ditty right there. Can I can I give my two of the week, which I feel like is the other one you might have? Yes, which I do think we mentioned on the emergency pod, which is when he quote tweeted the video of Jimmy Butler and he said, straight no, up I weak. Was, this is not the one that I was thinking. Okay, well, let me finish this one because straight up weak, say it loud and proud, but don't hide behind, quote unquote, someone else. If you want NBA to investigate, fine, but push it in your name and also bring some facts. Uh, I think those two tweets partner together really nicely because that's like the complete Mike Dunlop Twitter experience, which is in moments where it's like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna speak out here for something I've seen that's wrong, and I'm gonna give people the real detail of what's going on here. He did that in his time with the books, and then there were these other times where he would be deeply, deeply philosophical, and he would craft these beautifully worded tweets about coaching, but also about life, and that that kind of feels like the whole like the lap experience. Uh, I wonder what else you have. I know there is one other tweet which is very important this week. I don't know if that's the one that you were going to shout out. No, it, this is as of it's September twentieth, twenty twenty three, ten forty five a.m. It was tweeted. A pleasure. Dot dot dot. Having an X account, two coaches mm. hammering it out, and I get to sit back, smile, and learn. That's kind of what we've got to do. Following Coach Mike Dunlap for all this time. Mm-hmm. I'll shout out one last tweet, and it's a very important one. And it's a yes. shout out that goes to a great friend of ours, a longtime listener, one of the most active people in the GSPN Discord. A lot of you listeners will know him. Um, but shout out to John Taylor, who is not the first person to have tweeted at Mike Dunlap to get on the pod. Um, 
but he obviously gave the best, the most succinct, <laughs> the pitch that sealed the deal because John delivered and Mike Dunlop committed there and then. And just like that, the whole thing was in motion. And literally, you know, under 24 hours later, Jordan, yes. here we are. It's done. We've talked to the great man and we're all the better for it. Thank you, John. Thank you, Coach Mike Dunlap. Yes. For many reasons. I think that does it for this episode. Uh I you know what? We'll see when we're back. Because this is like this is a back-to-back days we've recorded. I feel like we've earned a few months off. I am gonna make a pledge here and now, Jordan, right? Because I we've done this two years in a row, and it's I mean things come up and it just plays out this way. My pledge to you, the listeners, is if you're a long-time listener, you will know that we are going to disappear in the off-season at some point. Next year, I am. it is my goal. This is, this is me putting it out there on the record, a stated intent that we will say, hey, we're going on hiatus. This is our last episode for a while. And all of you will know, uh, rather than just be like, hey, the guy's kind of disappeared. I mean, it's great. The great thing about defeat is that Ty and Rowan are still there and they're oh, yeah. they're keeping the ship going and shout out to those two guys for carrying the the books load of things while you and I were were picking up the the Brewers and the Packers side throughout the offseason for the books. Um but yeah, we are you know somewhat bad at just being like, Yeah, we'll be back next week and then months go by and then you hear from us with Damian Willard is a book and we've got an interview with Mike Dunlap. But uh I don't know right now if it will be next week. You you can hear from Jordan and I around the network. The books may have some more moves to make soon, and you'll certainly hear from us if that's the case. But consider this: the return. We are certainly we're ramping back up. We're getting closer to the point where, yeah, you know, come preseason, come regular season, you will you'll be hearing from us once a week. We'll have all sorts of great GSPN preview content. Ty and Rowan are going to keep keeping you going on that front too. So. Um, even at a time when, you know, Packers fever is starting to take hold. We're talking right now before we know just the extent of Packers fever by the time all of you are listening. But we hope it's going to be even greater. Um, playoffs are about to start for the Brewers. So, like, really, really big things on Talk of the Tundra with you and Numak talking Packers. People should be subscribed. Go and listen. You won't regret it. You won't find a better spot for all your Packers talk. And for the Brew Crew, Andrew Snyder and I talking all things Brewers, every series, all throughout the season. We're nearly there. As you're listening to this, you can also, you can just flip over now. You can listen to Jordan and Numak break down um, the Packers' appearance on Thursday Night Football. You can also listen to myself and Andrew recap a division-clinching series win over the St. Louis Cardinals and look ahead to the final series of the regular season. It is all happening, but trust me, in the mix of all that, you will hear plenty more from Jordan and I in the books, and Rowan and Ty will keep you going. Probably next up on this feed is going to be another Lillard pod and Ty getting to really share his thoughts. <clears throat> um, So watch out for that, I would say, early next week. Watch out for that pineapple shirt. For sure. Big time Ty doing big things on Twitter. I mean... It's maybe it's a conversation for another day, a different podcast, but the persona has reached new levels and I'm here for it. I think that's it. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
check out the rest of the GSPN shows. Once again, talk to the Tundra for the Packers, cruising for a bruising for the Brewers. Also, make time for this for movies, pop culture, other things. We've got a we got a pod coming on concert films very, very soon. Um, we've got a pod coming on the new Wes Anderson short films on Netflix very, very soon. So you've got all that to look forward to there too. Until the next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. And that is a thank you that comes from Mike Dunlap himself. He was thanking all of you, so make sure you take it to heart. Most of all, thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.